0: This is episode 72 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore events podcast. We're continuing with the 2012 Enrichment Conference, Mission, A Family on the Move. This is session three, Tuesday night. Well, my name is Glenn Maiden. I'm lead pastor at North Coast Family Fellowship here in Seaside. I'm relatively new to your covenant community. North Coast invited me to come and serve them five years ago and I come from Michigan. Their specific dream and goal was that we become a church family that reached out into the community. And I don't know if you're familiar with the North Coast of Oregon, but it is a community that desperately needs Jesus. Can I get an amen from the church? Perhaps your community as well. Let me give you some of the the truths that we deal with. Did you know the methamphetamine movement started in our area? That's an awesome claim to fame, isn't it Joel? In fact, one of the guys who came out of recovery, and we have some mutual friends who are former meth cooks, he said, yeah, Glenn, because of the port of Astoria, this is where the raw materials come in, and then they spread out all across the country. That is just an awesome way to begin ministry. Right, Joel? So thank you very much for that. Appreciate it. Also, in our elementary and middle school ministry, we deal with an 85% divorce rate among our student body. 85% of the students that we work with come from broken homes. By the time they enter into the senior high, they have a 90% plus divorce rate among their families. So this is what we deal with on the North Coast. A tremendous systemic brokenness throughout our community, but we are confident and we're thrilled about the gospel of Jesus Christ, amen? Living the gospel, touching our community with grace and love. And Pastor Joel, uh, that, that really handsome guy who started the whole thing, He is our uh, satellite pastor, and he's going to come up and share in just a minute about what we're doing, how God is leading us into our community reach the Samaritans. Well, let me tell you the story. Uh, I lived in Michigan for some 23 years. I served in a, a church that was an outreach ministry. This is why North Coast called me because of my background and reaching out to people. We started in an inner city location at what is now ground zero of the drug trafficking trade of western Michigan. The drugs flowed from Detroit, Michigan to Grand Rapids to our little town of Muskegon, Michigan. Do you see a pattern in my life? Do you get that? You know, so we were at ground zero. It's called the Pine Street Drug Corridor in a a really gnarly looking building in the inner city location. There were bullet holes in the buildings around us. There was a porn shop across the street. Automatic weapons fire. And, pastors, that's just an excellent way for church growth. Amen? Don't you love that? Come into my church. You know, wear a bulletproof vest. <laughs> what immediately happened in our story, in our community, was that we discovered that every person we dealt with was either an addict or a victim of abuse. Every single person. It wasn't a hit and miss, it wasn't a sense of. Um, We went out looking for broken people, Samaritans. This was our church family. Every Sunday, every counseling appointment for 17 years that I served at that awesome church was either an addict or victim of abuse. A couple stories, uh, one young woman came into the inner city and she came from a background, very conservative um, Christian background. Her father was a deacon in his local church, very conservative, you'd recognize the domination instantly. He was also regent in a local college and he serially assaulted his daughter. And so she came into our life and our story of the gospel and she had, she was suffering from and recovering from multiple personality disorder which is now called dissociative identity disorder. And so we began to work with her and involve her in a small group community connecting her to caring, accepting people and ultimately she became my secretary, my volunteer secretary. And after a while then we brought her on staff as my office manager because oftentimes women don't want to be called secretaries. Are you with me, guys? She loved being a manager. I'll never forget the day she said, Glenn, what do you think about me going into the counseling ministry? And so we encouraged her and she went to seminary, got her degree, a theological degree in counseling, and now she serves in Western Michigan as a counselor, an active ministry to people, broken people, Samaritans. Another young man, his name was Mark. He was also recovering from an addiction, and Mark said, uh, "You know, Glenn, I'd like to share my story in church." So we gave him a shot, I'll never forget the day." Mark stood up in front of a, a room. Hundreds of people, and he said, "Hi, my name's Mark. I'm a, I'm a recovering pornography and sex addict." That got the church's attention right away. It was pretty quiet that morning, but in in reflection, I I don't recall a time when Mark was criticized or put down for his story. And what we found out during the years of reaching people who were deeply broken by whether addiction or survivors of trauma is that a Sunday morning event as passionate as it would be in music and and by the way that was a pretty passionate rendition wasn't it you guys. Regardless of how passionate the music was nor relevant the teaching, a one-hour event could not even begin to touch the story of a person suffering from addiction or abuse. And so we began to develop what we called small group culture. It is the idea, the vision that, that to reach people, the Samaritans of our world We had to get into into their lives and provide counterculture for them. So we we thought about small groups. Everything we did was focused around connecting with people, touching the gospel and the individual stories of people. We didn't move forward until small groups were in place, understanding that certainly music and message and a couple hours on Sunday morning could not begin to unravel and be counterculture for their story. And so North Coast invited us here and and this is our passion to this day. We have a, a deep small group community. We wouldn't think about moving forward unless people are in small groups, living life together, connecting, praying for each other, studying the scriptures together, becoming deep friends in community. And I just thought I'd share a few of the groups that we're, uh, that we're involved in. Just, just some of them. This is one that especially means a lot to me. This is called The Landing. It's Celebrate Recovery for Teen Students. We actually converted this to a Sunday School event and we call our Sunday School Small Groups for Kids. The Landing is for students who need recovery, whose parents come out of deeply addicted backgrounds. We also have Celebration Station for 1st through 5th graders. This is actually a middle school event for The Landing. We have cancer survivors. People who have been through cancer. Smokers Anonymous. I think you know you're reaching out in the community when you have a number of people right outside your doors getting one last drag before church. You know what I'm saying? We had a couple of people say, Glenn, people are smoking outside the church. I said, awesome. We're reaching into the community. It's starting to work, right? But it's really gross. <laughs> There's another one. Betrayed hearts. Healing and support for partners of sex addicts. What we found is that as men enter into recovery, their wives suffer great trauma and need healing. So this one, Betrayed Hearts, is for healing support for partners of sex addicts. We have, uh, for women, a confidential group, support for women who've been abused. We have Sex Addiction for Women. Uh, This is, again, all very confidential. Beauty from Ashes, perhaps, perhaps you've heard of this great title. Recovering support for those who have been sexually abused. We have a couple sexual abuse groups. Mothers of sexually abused children, giving support to moms whose children have gone through some of the most terrifying events of life. And we have alcohol and drug addiction. Again, this is for women. I personally lead a, a group for men uh, from a book that is the result of my doctoral dissertation on, on recovery from addiction. We're constantly in the conversation of how do you move people into small, groups, small group communities of believers. What we found over the years is that as you reach people, the Samaritans of your world, those whom you did not choose. By the way, I never set out to reach communities of people like that. Do you remember those visions you had when you were a young pastor? Do you remember that? I'm going to reach cool people who drive BMWs. Can I get an amen from the pastors? Because they give well. You know, that would be a great idea. Wouldn't it, Joel? They would be pretty cool, white-collar folks. Not so much. What we discovered is that people who are in small group communities of believers seeking the Lord, finding Jesus, growing in grace, it's a community that persevered. People who are not, who just did the Sunday morning event, the the programming events, they disappeared. So this is our passion and our path forward. Another piece of this, Joel, why don't you come up? Another piece of this is that we've discovered on the north coast of Oregon that unchurched people, the Samaritans, they don't come to traditional venues. It's been amazing to see the animosity of the unchurched community toward the church, toward faith communities. So Joel, this is Pastor Joel White. Not only does he rock really loud, but he is our pastor of Satellite Ministries. Give him a hand, will you? Because I love him. So Joel, tell him, give him a little overview about what we do, who we are, what's
1: going on. So um, about... Five years ago, I was in Convergence and uh, took a class that was all about reaching out into unchurched culture. Um, it was a class uh, where we read a book called The Shaping of Things to Come, and it really challenged me to think differently about what we're doing as a church. And I came home, and I was like, oh, Glenn, man, you've got to read this book. So he reads the book, and he's like, wow, that's pretty far out there. And he's like, so what are we going to do about it? How are we going to reach these people? And so we realized that When you're working with broken people and they're finding healing, they're not going to walk in through the doors of a traditional church. And so we decided to start planting very untraditional looking churches, not only uh, in our community, but also in our surrounding communities. And so um, we realized that we needed to have... Uh, relevant music that was reaching people who wouldn't come to a traditional church. We realized that we needed to have live teaching. We needed, you know, small groups as a foundation and, and an effective children's ministry. And so we started developing these four legs of the stool of what these church plants were going to sit on. And we planted our first one called the Cove, um, right next to a tattoo parlor in town. And uh, So our thinking is you can freshen up your
0: tattoo right before you come to church. Yeah. It,
1: and uh, one of the things that was really amazing, so we open the doors and, and we get all these, these people in, and, and things, are, things are going really good. And then all of a sudden, we start looking around and we're, we're like, man, I don't know who any of these guys are. And I start talking to them. And, you know, they grew up in Seaside, they grew up a long time, and they've never even walked into the doors of a church. And you sit down with them, and you're like, so what, what got you coming to church in the first place? They're like, oh, what you guys do isn't church. There's no way that church would be right next to a tattoo parlor, and so we really started to put into place the plan to develop leaders and just reproduce ourselves so that we could reach out even more. And so we've just started the river, which is our second one. So
0: nice, thanks, yeah. Joel. Hey, again, we give Joel a warm thank you. Thanks, Joel. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so we we feel really passionate about reaching out to people. About connecting in small groups, that is the the core of what we do. Relational driven, gospel driven. So the gospel intersects the story of the people in our community. And from that movement of the spirit, we go into worship in venues that are different. Um, Our dream is that there would be something for everyone. A musical style for, for everyone on the coast. David really pressed me about, Dave Setti, about what your motivation is. In the inner city, it was a a violent location, a violent place. And uh, in the heart of the drug trafficking network network of Western Michigan. One problem with Michigan is it has long winters. Anybody have long winters from where you come from? Thank you very much. And snow is awesome at Christmas time, isn't it? You like snow? It's beautiful. Yeah, thanks. But it lasts five, six months in Michigan. It's a brutal ordeal. One February... My volunteer secretary called and she said, Glenn, there's a guy here at the church building. She's making the program. She said, Glenn, there's a guy, he wants to come in. And he says he has a weapon. Should I let him in? You know, this pastor, your first response is, sure, absolutely. Let the guy in. So I called the police. I said, do not let the guy in. I called the cops. You know, I found if you call the police and you tell them, that there's a weapon involved, they're very interested in that. (laughs) So by the time Lori and I got there to the church building in the inner city, this very brutal location, there were about a half a dozen squad cars and ambulance, and there was a, a man who had been on drugs and slashed both of his wrists deeply and began to walk through the neighborhood seeking help. He came to our building and began to pound on the doors wanting help and relief after he'd knocked on the doors he walked behind a tree next in front of the house next door to our building and he sat down to die the police found him and rescued him and took him to the hospital and there we stood at the front of the doors of the church and i'll never forget the scene the imagery it was two double doors with glass aluminum frame and there was blood everywhere there was fingerprints and palm prints and Low velocity blood splatter. I, I watch CSI quite a bit. <laughs> and I will never forget the pool of blood. I didn't know the human body could exchange such volumes of liquid and survive. This cop was there, and I said, Well, sir, you're going to clean this up right. And the look was amazing. You know? So Laura and I went downstairs to the maintenance room when we. We got a bucket and a scrub brush and we began to scrub the blood from the doors. I'll never forget that scene. The blood washing down the doors and across the concrete steps into the frozen street. And as I stood back and looked the image I've never gotten out of my mind. The image of blood that was shed. And placed over the doorposts and the lintel of the homes of the people of Israel. The blood that saved them, covered them, that paid for their sin. I often thought we ought to have left the blood on the doorposts. For the image, the the message that all are invited, all are welcome through the doors of the church of Jesus Christ. Which is the hope of the planet, amen? All are welcome, all the broken all the Samaritans of our world so the gospel can touch, can intersect their life and their story. Pastors and faith community we have the great privilege of intersecting the gospel and the stories of people. Amen? And I could close with just a brief prayer. You know, Sam, our drummer, uh, his dad died today. And right in the middle of rehearsal dealt with all that. Let's pray for Sam, shall we? and those in our community who are broken. Lord, we thank you for covenant community, for the gospel, for the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, the the expiation of our sin, the propitiation, the payment, the the atonement for our sin, the blood that was shed, the message, the image, the picture, that all are welcome into the church of Jesus Christ, who might trust and follow and believe. We thank you for the broken and would like to agree in prayer for Sam, our friend, who loves worship, that you'll bless him in this hour of grief. What an honor to be a community of faith, to give the tender compassions of Jesus, and it is in his name and for his sake that we pray it. And all God's friends said,
2: Amen.
3: We're going to invite Michael Lawrence, who's the pastor at Henson Church in Portland, uh, to come and and share from his perspective what God has led him to lead in that uh, church there. So when
4: uh, when Jeremy asked me to speak about bringing leadership to an existing church, I thought that's awfully nice, Uh, kind of him to invite me. I've only been here a year and a half. but it struck me as a little odd. I'm new here. I know almost none of you. You don't know me. This is only my second one of these conferences. Uh, Not only am I new here, I've never been to the Pacific Northwest before I actually moved here to to take the church at at Henson. I have spent my entire life either on the East Coast or further East, living in England I only recently learned how to untuck my shirt. (laughs) It took me a while to give up wearing suits on Sundays, because they still do that back east. And I still don't own cowboy boots. So I wasn't entirely sure why I was invited to come. We're just beginning the ministry at at Henson. But then I opened up the program, and I realized where I fell. It said Mission Samaria, and I realized, right, right. I'm the Samaritan. (laughs) Now it makes sense. Let me tell you a little bit about Henson Baptist Church. Actually, how many of you all know about this church, Henson Baptist Church? Yeah, right. Okay, wait, wait, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Now, if uh, you or your parents or your brother or your cousin got married there, you know, keep your hands up. Yeah, still a bunch of you. If you were on staff there at some point or went to church there, right, you know, what? while you were in seminary, yeah, it's a strange thing being an outsider coming to Henson Memorial Baptist Church because it seems like anybody and everybody who's ever been through Oregon has spent time in this church, far more time than I have. Well, I'm going to tell you about the church a little bit, from from my perspective as a newcomer and outsider are, are arriving at this church, this church, as you know, has a has a storied history. Uh, it's it's the old Second Baptist Church of Portland. It's one of the one not the oldest, but one of the older churches in the state. Uh, it did yeoman's labor as as a church, fighting uh, the battles of modernism and fundamentalism, really fighting for the for the gospel. Uh, in, the, in the history of the American Baptist denomination back when, when they were the Northern Baptists. And then as that, as that battle was increasingly being lost by those who held to the gospel, uh, this church, of course, led the way uh, along with several other churches in the formation of what eventually would become uh, the conservative Baptists of America. This is one of the reasons that I pastor a church that is named after a dead man. Uh, it's a, that's an odd thing. Yet yeah, people ask me, Henson, What's that's not the name in the neighborhood, is it? You know, I get to explain uh, where, where this this name came from. As a former pastor, so it's got a storied history, and the history's well known. And the members know their history. They know about the the great days under Don Baker, and they know about the great days under Albert Johnson, and they remember these days. And some of them. Really remember them, because they were there for for all of them, uh, and they and they love telling me about it and it 's encouraging the, the The church is full, and some of you know this personally, the church is full of wonderful saints, godly men and women who have followed jesus longer than i 've been alive uh, It is full of of saints who have given their lives on the mission field and retired and come back to Henson. It's filled with saints uh, who have uh, given their lives in, in teaching God's word, maybe in a seminary setting or, or a Bible college setting. And about half of the congregation is over the age of 60. So there's a real demographic challenge in the congregation. Something else about the church, uh, when, I, when I arrived, uh, my, my church sits in one of the most enviable locations in Portland, we we have an amazing location right in the in the Hawthorne district, where a center a center city, East Side, old neighborhood. You couldn't afford to buy the property to put a church there now if you wanted to. Uh, we we own the better part of three square city blocks of property. It's just an incredible location, and. The vast majority of the members of the church live way out in Gresham or further, maybe down in Oregon City. We've got folks over in Beaverton. Like nobody lives there. It's, it's, a, it's a commuter church and they all drive in. And they're scared of the neighborhood. They love the neighborhood. They don't wanna go anywhere. They had a chance a number of years ago to move the church out to the suburbs and they decided not to do that. That was a good decision. But they're scared of the neighborhood. When my wife and I first arrived, uh, one of the deaconesses, a dear woman, pulled my wife aside and, and very gently but firmly chastised her for walking out to the parking lot alone. Because this is a dangerous neighborhood and you should not walk out to the parking lot alone. Now I think that was probably true about 35 or 40 years ago. But it is not true anymore. Uh, The houses in my neighborhood begin at half a million dollars and go up. It is a gentrified neighborhood. It is, And and I'm from the big city on the East Coast, so I know dangerous neighborhoods. And I haven't yet found one in Portland. (laughs) I'll keep trying. The church has been, over the last 20 years, served by a series of pastors, and as far as I can tell, I've talked to some of them. Good men, faithful men, they love Jesus, they love the Lord, but they've been a series of short pastorates. They, they haven't stuck, they haven't, they haven't endured. And so the congregation has had a series of interim pastors in between, long periods where there's been no, no clear leadership. And one of the things that's happened to the church in in this process of repeated short pastorates is the congregation is sort of subdivided into safe silos, little mini churches inside the church, where it actually doesn't matter anymore if there's not a senior pastor leading the whole, because we've got a safe group here that we can be a part of. Maybe it's a Sunday school class, or maybe it's the choir, or maybe it's some other ministry going on. And inside that silo... People know each other well, they love each other, they're doing good ministry, but they're largely disconnected from the rest of the congregation. It's, it's a series of churches inside the church. One of the blessings of this congregation is a few years ago, a previous pastor helped the church move to a plurality of elders. And uh, they've been through several series uh, of elders, and, and the group of elders that I inherited as I landed are some of the most godly men I've ever met. And I am so blessed and encouraged to be able to work with them. And the church as a whole has a real heart for the gospel. They're kind of scared of their neighborhood. They don't live in the neighborhood, but they know the neighborhood needs the gospel. They have a heart for that, just not sure how to do it. So you can imagine that when I arrived, one of the questions they asked me was, well, what's your plan? How are we going to do it? And they, and they told me about all the various programs that they were running. And I think, well, some of you who have moved into existing churches will understand what I'm about to say. I think what they were really hoping that I was going to say is, oh, that's, that's great. Um, I'm going to be able to make everything better, but we're not going to have to change anything. You know that feeling? Pastor, make everything better, but don't change anything. Yeah, that's what I was feeling. What's my plan? I said, honestly, I don't have a plan. I don't have a plan. I have a God. And if I have to explain to you what I think I'm going to do as I I come in here, I I can put it in four words. And that's what I'm just going to share with you. I don't have lots of great stories yet. We haven't been here long enough. I just wanna share with you the four words that I shared with them and, and how that's beginning to play out just, just uh, a little over a year into it. My four words were preach, pray, love, and stay. Preach, pray, love, and stay. Preach. I am convinced that God does his work through his word in a world gone awry." That's how God does His work. He does His work through His Word in His world that has gone badly awry. You will hear a lot of talk about how we need to become fluent in the culture, the dominant culture around us. And and in one sense I think that's true. We, we, We need to not be afraid of the culture. We need to be able to connect To the culture, we need to be able to speak into the culture, but we need to be very clear that, look, no one was ever saved because of our fluency in Assyrian or Babylonian or hipster. The language of hipster doesn't save anyone. It is God's Word that brings light to blind eyes. It is God's Word that brings life to dead hearts. And I, I need to work hard as a pastor, as a preacher, to think about how to communicate that word into the culture that I, that, that I have to live in, for sure. And so I'm gonna be looking for bridges and I'm gonna to try to understand the people around me. But it is not my, finally my understanding of them that changes them. It is God's word. And it has always been this way. There has never been a time in the history of the earth that it has not been this way. I mean, just just think about your Bible for a minute. Genesis chapter 1. God speaks and life happens. Genesis chapter 12. God speaks and he calls an idolater and a son of an idolater out of Ur and begins a brand new plan to save humanity, to bring grace and redemption into the world through Abraham. The nation of Israel. Exodus chapter 19, they've been rescued from Egypt, but they're not yet a nation. They're not yet God's people. How do they become God's people? God speaks to them from the top of Mount Sinai and makes them His people. I, I think one of the most powerful pictures of this is Ezekiel chapter 36, where Ezekiel is told by God to preach a sermon to Bones. Dead bones, dry bones, bones that have no ears on them. That is not the way we would tell the story if we were going to tell the story. If we were going to tell the story, we would tell it this way. God would take those bones and put flesh on them and put ears on them, and then he would tell Ezekiel, now preach to them. Because they've got ears now, they can hear. But that's not the way God works. God brings life through his word. And so, Ezekiel preached to dry bones, and those dry bones got up, and they lived. And then, of course, as the story moves on into the New Testament, it's the same thing again, isn't it? God speaks, and the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And and when Jesus wants to bring life to the dead, what does He do? He speaks. He preaches. He goes out into the villages and he preaches the good news. Now, he does all sorts of acts of mercy along the way to demonstrate who he is. He heals people. He helps the hurting, the outcast. He touches people that haven't been touched in years. But to bring life to them, he preaches the good news. And in fact, at, at one point in his ministry, when, when the, the people are saying, hey, 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 we need you to come back so that, so that you can do more healings, so that you can do more acts of mercy, what does Jesus say? No. I must go to other villages and preach there too, for that is why I came. As he stands before the tomb of Lazarus, another dead man whose ears don't work, what does he do? He calls out, he speaks, Lazarus, come out, and dead ears hear, and a dead heart starts beating again. And that is meant to be a picture, brothers, of our work as pastors, to be men who, with great understanding and much compassion, and with a lot of hard work and labor, to understand the people that we're preaching to. Nevertheless, we preach the word. And and then that's what the apostles went and did, didn't they? They went and preached. And they, they, they preached out in the marketplace and they preached in the synagogue. And they preached on street corners and they preached in people's homes. Wherever they went, they spoke the word. And we shouldn't think that that's because ancient people liked preaching. Ancient people didn't like preaching any more than modern people like preaching. There's this idea out there that we've got to do something different now because you know, modern people don't like preaching anymore. I mean, when did they ever like preaching? <laughs> Paul said it was foolishness. You know, Paul was speaking into a culture in which the high culture, kind of the East Coast culture that I come from, that high culture, very sophisticated, very intellectual the equal of anything that you would find in London or DC or New York City. And the kind of speaking that was done in that high culture was very intellectual, very polished. But then he also was operating in in a culture that was uh, sort of a majority popular low culture, and I'm not going to equate that with the West Coast. It was, it, was a, it was an entertainment-saturated culture in the Roman world. Have you ever heard of the circus? The Romans invented it. And the people were fed entertainment constantly. And it was in that high culture, sophisticated, intellectual, I'm too smart for you, low culture, just give me more entertainment environment, that Paul came preaching the gospel. And he recognized that it was foolishness. But he recognized that it was the power of God to save men and women. And he still believed that at the end of his life. As he wrote to Timothy and said, Timothy, what do I charge you to do with my last words? Preach the word. Preach the word. So I want to preach. I want to preach the word. Now, that means several things in my context. That means constantly rehearsing the gospel with my people. I think it's very easy in an existing church like Henson, full of these towering giant saints that I've inherited, to assume the gospel, to assume that everybody gets it, to assume that we know how to explain the gospel, to assume that we know what to do with the gospel. No, never assume the gospel. When you assume the gospel, you're one generation away from losing the gospel. So we rehearse the gospel. We rehearse it every Sunday. We rehearse it in the morning. We rehearse it again every Sunday evening. We rehearse it on Wednesday nights. We rehearse it in our small groups. We rehearse it in our staff meetings. We rehearse it in our elders' meetings. We are constantly reminding ourselves, what is the gospel? We are preaching it as, as we heard uh, yesterday. Or maybe it was earlier this morning. We are preaching the gospel to ourselves. Another thing that this means for me is making sure that, that my people are growing in their love of listening to the word, not the man. I want them to listen to the word, not the man. Uh, most of us as preachers have the kind of personalities where it's pretty easy if we let our personality go to quickly get them to love the man. And you know, you can get a lot done with that. When they love you, they'll follow you. When they love you, they will, they'll trust you. They'll, they'll, they'll do what you recommend them to do. But if we're gonna reach our Samaria, they don't need my agenda. They don't need my advice, they need God's agenda. They need, they need God's mission. They need to be listening to the Word and going where the Word tells them to go. So I'm trying to create a culture in the church where they listen to the Word. I'm trying to create as many different opportunities for the Word to be preached, taught, gossiped, whispered, discussed. And I limit myself to just Sunday mornings and one Bible study on Wednesday night. And I'm trying to raise up as many additional gospel teachers, evangelists, small group leaders, disciples in the word as I can. It also means being aware that the word has a two-fold work. If you, you, don't turn there now, but if you look at Mark chapter 4, Jesus' great parable about the seed, about the word and its work. The Word does two things. On the one hand, the Word brings life. But on the other hand, the Word divides and the Word makes very clear. The Word is like a light that shines into people's hearts and it makes very clear where people stand. The, the Word is, of God is, is the kind of agent in people's lives where those who are hungry for it get more and want more and are given more. And those who aren't interested, even what they have is taken away. And we've seen that. We've seen that, even in a year and a half. Uh, A a, a church, as I I described, lots of different programs, lots of different silos, which means that over the years, lots of people have come to Henson for lots of different reasons. I'm working, because I want us to reach Samaria, I'm working to make sure that we're actually here for the word that we have a taste for the word that we understand the gospel and that it's gripped our hearts and that it's driving our hearts and as the gospel is preached to the congregation it turns out not everybody's interested and so people leave and that's okay because you cannot lead a church if your principle is okay we're all going to hold hands And we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that nobody that's holding hands together right now ever leaves. Now that doesn't work. Because not everybody's there for the gospel, as it turns out. And it's the gospel itself that begins to make that clear. But the good news, of course, is not only does the word divide, it gives life. It gives life to Christians. And it gives life to non-Christians. Uh, we, we've been so encouraged, even in this first year, to see more adult baptisms than the church has seen in a long, long time. Soon after we got there, uh, a young couple uh, came, came to talk to me. Actually, they sent me a long and very, very stream of consciousness email, which I learned later is one of the effects of, uh, a, of a lot of years on weed. It just affects your mind. I don't know how else to say it, because uh, now I've been getting a lot of emails like this. Uh, he, he's a cab driver uh, who maybe had come to Christ, wasn't sure, a few years ago. Had met the girl of his dreams. She was an atheist. They're, what they had in common, she was, she's an intellectual, he's a cab driver. Uh, what, what they had in common was the party scene and weed. They fell in love, and uh, life wasn't working for them. And they found themselves in our church hearing the gospel as I was preaching through the gospel of Mark. And as we saw this couple from the neighborhood come to know Christ, to know freedom from sin, to know freedom from weed, Oh, it's a powerful thing for our church. Preach the word because the word gives life. Personally, I am committed to letting anything, anything that depends on me to fail rather than allowing the preaching of God's word to fail at Henson Baptist Church because it is the gospel that brings life. Second, pray. I need to pray. Acts chapter 6, there is a crisis in the church. And it's a serious crisis. It's, it's threatening to, to break up the church in Jerusalem. It is a serious problem for unity. And what do the apostles say? It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word and prayer. To take care of this very serious and significant crisis. I I, I take that to mean I need to be giving myself to prayer, and I need to be teaching my leaders to be giving themselves to prayer. Because if we're going to reach Samaria, we're not going to do it because we're really clever. We're not going to do it because we're really gifted. We're going to do it because God must build His church, and God responds to the prayers of His people so I'm not going to spend as much time here I, I, it, I think it is very tempting to do rather than to pray I think it is very tempting to get busy with lots of programs one of the first things that I led my, my, my leadership to read I'm a big reader uh, we're constantly reading books together as leadership teams uh, I had them read Joe Bailey's uh, The Gospel Blimp anybody read The Gospel Blimp? you young people you've never heard of The Gospel Blimp you need to go read it the God, it's out of print, but it's easy to find. Because I looked around Henson Baptist Church and I realized we got a lot a, a good programs here, but honestly, I think they're blimps. I, I think they began well, but they're now taking up a lot of energy and a lot of manpower to basically make us feel better about ourselves and what we're doing. But they're not actually reaching the community and they're not building up the church. So maybe we should pray. And I've tried to lead the church to pray, to pray more in all sorts of different ways. I asked my staff to pull together a membership directory and I asked all of the staff and all of the elders to commit to praying for the members by name, one by one, every day of the month, 12 months out of the year. So all you gotta do, I tell my elders, all you gotta do is look at your watch, see what day of the month it is, and open to that page in the directory. And then pray for those people on that page by name. And we spend the first 30 to 45 minutes of every staff meeting and every elders meeting doing that. An amazing thing begins to happen. Elders and staff begin to say, I haven't seen that person in a while. I wonder what's going on with them. Oh." Maybe we should be shepherds and go find out. I mean, it's crazy to think we're going to reach Samaria if we're not even taking care of the flock that we've been entrusted with. So we pray. And it begins to teach us as we pray how to be shepherds. Shepherds of the weak, shepherds of the wounded, shepherds of the lost. Because we're paying attention to the sheep. I started a Sunday evening prayer meeting. The old people were thrilled. They thought the good old days had returned, only it was nothing like the good old days prayer meeting. Uh, we're, we're not praying for any sort of hospital lists. I'm not praying for Aunt Susie's Bunyan, no. We're praying for the ministries of the church. I set the list, we're praying for our neighborhood, we're praying for outreach ministries that are going on. We're, we're, we're praying for uh, missionaries that we're sending out. If, if somebody started an evangelistic Bible study at work, we pray for that. And we do it as a congregation. We, we've got mics like this, and it goes around. There are about anywhere from 40 to 80 people that show up on a Sunday evening. And we just pray for the work of the church in our neighborhood. And then I lead them in prayer, every Sunday morning. I brought back the old-fashioned pastoral prayer. Because I feel like part of my responsibility as a pastor is to teach my people how to pray. And how will they learn how to pray if they never hear me pray? So I pray for the lost in our neighborhood. And I pray for our church. And I pray for our gay mayor. And our very liberal governor. And our even more liberal president. And that was shocking to my very conservative suburban church, suburban membership, even though we're an inner city church. And I prayed for them, and I didn't pray against them. I prayed for them with compassion. I pray that, that God would give them wisdom, that He would make them effective leaders. I pray out of Timothy and Romans, the way Paul taught us to pray for those that God's put in authority over us. I pray for other churches. That was shocking. And not just for CB churches. Yeah, that's shocking too. But I regularly pray for, for Rick McKinley. He's, he's one of our CB churches, and he's just a, uh, uh, about two miles from our, from our building. Um, I pray for charismatic churches. I pray for Presbyterian churches. I pray for uh, Anglican churches and pastors. I pray for all sorts of guys if I know they're doing gospel work. Because it's not about Henson. It's not a competition. I don't know what's gonna happen to Henson. Maybe God called me to Portland to gently and compassionately see Henson home. I don't know. I don't know the future. I I don't need to know. Because I know that the kingdom of God wins. I know that the church wins. And so wherever I see gospel work going on in my city, I wanna pray for it. And I wanna lead my congregation to pray for it. Because I know as, as they do that, they gain more of a heart for the city. They gain a heart for the gospel. They gain a desire to begin to partner more with these other churches to, hey, how can we reach Samaria together? Third is love. And where love began was learning to love my people. That has been harder than I thought it would be. It's, it has nothing to do with them. It's not their fault, it's me. Uh, I, I was a pastor in DC for, for nearly a decade. I was the number two teaching pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church with Mark Dever. And because of the nature of that ministry there, I was far more acceptable, uh, acceptable, no, no, accessible to the congregation than the senior pastor was. And so they were dear to me and I was dear to them. And it was hard to leave them. And it's hard to learn to love a new congregation. Especially when they tell you that you preach too long. <laughs> and that you don't tell enough stories about yourself and other helpful advice like that. It's, it's hard to love them. And so I've had to pray and learn how to love them. It's slow work. And it's begun, for me anyway, in basically giving myself to discipling people in the congregation. Just the hard work of of pastoral ministry. I spend a lot of time with my elders discipling them, talking to them about the gospel and how they can be sharing the gospel in the places that they are. I spend a lot of time with young guys. I never write my sermons alone. My office is always open. I'm encouraging some of the young seminarians, and some of the younger guys in the congregation to just hang out with me as I go about my work of pastoral ministry. I think we took a big step uh, last weekend, or was it maybe it was two weekends ago. One of the things I've learned that's different as senior pastor than associate pastor is senior pastor you kind of have to be lead rejoicer and lead weeper. You've got to be able to rejoice with and for your people to show them that you love them and you've got to be able to weep with and for your people to show, you that, to show them that you love them. And two weekends ago, I got to do both kind of at the same time. In one weekend, over the course of three days, I preached three sermons. One was a wedding sermon It was huge rejoicing. This was one of the princesses of the church getting married. A young girl who had grown up, everybody loved her. One of those families that was a real pillar of the church kind of families, you know. This was big time rejoicing. And then on Sunday, I I got to preach a commissioning sermon. As we sent out one of our well-loved staff to the mission field, a man who had made a huge impact in the congregation. And so it was kind of both rejoicing and weeping because we were so sad to see him go. And then on Monday, I got to preach a funeral sermon of a young man, 20 years old, who had committed suicide. He'd grown up in the church. His parents were still with us. And I had to lead my congregation through that, through the rejoicing, through the mixed feelings of sending a loved one out, and through the deep weeping. And I'm convinced that's part of how we reach Samaria, as the people around us see us love one another when it's easy and when it's hard. And even when it means having to love one another in an exhausting way through that whole weekend together. As the whole church turned out three days in a row. It's meant taking membership seriously. When I arrived, Henson Church had a membership officially of close to 800. But only 400 people or so showing up on a Sunday. And I found myself wondering, okay, so where are they? And I was told, well, no, no, they're members. They they just don't come anymore. (laughs) And I thought, that's not love. That's not a family. I mean, think about it. Some of you all are parents. I mean, is, is your family just whoever happens to show up for dinner that night? And if, like, one of the kids just sort of started regularly not showing up for dinner, you'd go, well, oh, well, you know, I mean, they're still part of the family. They just don't show up. And then maybe some other people were showing up all the time, but they weren't part of the family. And, well, we'll just sort of count you as part of the family, even though we don't really know who you are. Now, that's not the way you run your family. Not at all. Oh, we shouldn't run the church that way either. So we began to take membership seriously. Where are these people that we say we've committed to and they've committed to us? And by the way, those of you that are coming all the time, why aren't you committing? Because, see, the world, the Samaria that I live in, they get clubs. My my neighborhood's full of clubs. Music clubs, climbing clubs, skate clubs, tattoo clubs, vegan clubs, leather clubs. The world knows how to do a club where a group of people who have a lot in common with each other get together and hang out with each other, so long as they want to. And then when they don't want to, they don't do it anymore. But what my Samaria needs to see is a family, a group of people who are committed to one another for no other reason than because they have Jesus Christ in common. So teaching my people to love each other's music, I've got this young new church that's basically growing up inside this old existing church and they don't like each other's music. And the world understands that. And I'm coming along saying, no, we're not going to have two services. Because the world would get that. The world gets music clubs. The world understands dividing over music. We are not the world. And so old people, can you love the young people in this church by learning to sing some of their music? And young people, can you learn to love some of the older people in the church by singing some of their music? And can we stop acting like the world and dividing over the petty likes and preferences the same way the world does and actually be a family that loves? And that means nobody gets it all the way they want. I'm usually happiest when I feel like, yep, no one walked away from this morning's sermon liking every song. If I'm pretty convinced no one liked every song, then I know I did it right. <laughs> because that's what my Samaria needs to see: Not a club, not a group of religious consumers coming to get what they already know they want, but people that look like John 13:34, people who love one another, despite their differences. Of course, it also means loving our Samaria. And that's meant all sorts of things. And you've heard lots of other stories. I'm not going to give you lots of our stories. Maybe the most important one that I will give is I've got a church full of retired school teachers. And so they have taken upon themselves to adopt our local elementary school, Buckman School. And from there, then the Buckman Neighborhood Association. And this has been really significant. As we go in and mentor kids, and help out teachers, and clean up the building, and paint the walls, and as one of my guys actually has befriended the principal, and just goes has lunch with him periodically, just so that there's somebody safe that he can talk to, you know, that's not a parent that's gonna scream at him, and not a teacher that's gonna scream at him, and not the press that's gonna report what he says in the paper. I was told uh, just last night that the reputation that my church used to have with our neighborhood was so bad that not only were we picketed at one point by the neighborhood, but that they came and poured uh, whatever that acid is that smells like rotten eggs in the vents so that when the folks showed up on a Sunday morning, the whole building just smelled of rotten eggs. Okay, that was then, this year, because we have tried to love our neighborhood. The Buckman Neighborhood Association nominated us to the city as Neighborhood Partner of the Year. That's amazing because we're just trying. We're not very good at it actually, but we're trying to love our neighborhood. But of course, the question that we're constantly asking is it's really easy to go in and paint walls. It's easy to mentor kids. It's easy to be a help to teachers. We, we host the Portland Farmers Market in our, in our parking lot. That's pretty easy. And the world applauds us for it. They nominate us to the city. But that doesn't get anybody to heaven. So the question that we're constantly asking, and we don't have answers yet, is how do we take these points of contact and turn them into gospel ministries? How do we take these points of love, of very practical love, and turn them into relationships where we can talk about the love of Jesus Christ? One other thing that we've done that just flows out of that prayer that I pray for other churches is is we decided to host a church plant. Uh, It's it's not our plant. We're not not planting it, we get no credit. It's not our denomination. Uh, And and they're doing a lot better than we are. Uh, in In the course of two years, they've gone from 20 to 800. And it is my joy and delight and privilege to partner with this church and to host this church plant the Lord gave us two church buildings. I don't know why we have two church buildings, but we do. And so we are renting out the other church building, one block away from our church, to this church plant. And it's been a powerful witness to the community to see these two churches work together. I'm way over time, so let me just stop then with my, la- my fourth point, which is stay. Preach, pray, love, stay. If you look at declining churches in America, one of the things that will characterize them is short pastorates. If you look at healthy, growing churches in America, one of the things that will characterize them is long pastorates. I have a friend, his name's Mike McKinley, he wrote a book called Church Planning is for Wimps. It's tongue-in-cheek. For all you church planners, you can laugh now. Um, church planning is for wimps, it's tongue-in-cheek because what he did is kind of what I'm doing, church revitalization. In church revitalization, you go into an existing church and you love and you care for that existing church even as you're bringing to birth a new church and you're kind of hoping that they won't notice and that they'll, they'll, they'll sort of think all along, oh no, we're just one church. And of course, that's your goal, that they're just one church. Would that I were only doing one or the other. But I get to do both. And there are bumps along the way. This has been a hard year and a half. You can't make things better. You cannot lead. You cannot preach, pray, and love. And everything stay the same. But they haven't fired me yet. It's hard work. And I've got to be honest. There are days, even this last week, it's discouraging work. But my people need to know that I'm not leaving. I'm here, I'm here for the long run. I don't know what the future holds. I wanna see our church re-indigenized in the neighborhood. And it's beginning to happen, but it's very slow. My wife and I bought a house in the neighborhood Uh, just a few blocks from the church. First time a pastor of Henson Baptist Church has lived in the neighborhood in like maybe 50 years. But it's not just me. Uh, We own a bunch of property. And so I'm asking all the staff to move into the neighborhood. And that's what we're doing. We're moving the church staff into the neighborhood. And with any of the houses that are left over, I'm asking church members, those commuters, move into the neighborhood rent your house, sell your house, I don't care. Move into the neighborhood because we're staying. We're in it for the long haul. It's gonna take real patience. It's not as quick as church planting. It means having the long view. But I think I have all the justification I need to have that long view with where I started, which is the Word. Because Jesus talked about this. He talked about the farmer that went out and planted the Word. He sowed the seed, and then he went to bed. Night and day, he got up. And he didn't know how it happened. But eventually, the Word sprouted. The Word brought forth a harvest. I don't know what the germination period is for God's Word in my neighborhood. Charles Bridges, the great 19th century pastor, in in giving some advice to young pastors, said, you know, the seed may lay under the sod until you do. And only then spring up and bear fruit. Maybe. God will, God will do his work.
3: One of the key areas in... in Ways that we've been able to identify Samaria is by those that are ethnically different than us. And um, so I'm going to ask Jiru to come and uh, share kind of this next piece as uh, he pastors in Newport. And as Newport First Baptist Church is uh, focused on reaching the Hispanic-speaking population, he's going to describe some of the hurdles that they've overcome in reaching um, that population in their area in Newport.
2: Buenas noches. Well, I speak Spanish tonight, I hope so you understand me, Uh, bendiciones, God bless you everyone, Um, I made this intentional for this tonight, for you to understand what is my context and I invite my brother, uh, Roy Levy, to come in because this is part of my uh, conference or what I speak tonight. I share to you some of my stories about my ministry in Newport. How no, uh Newport? Can you raise your hand? Okay. How many of you like um, Mexican food? <laughs> How many of you like a Peruvian food? Some of you? Okay. Uh, tonight I want to share my story, but I want to share uh, some of my and John chapter 4 I read in Spanish I have it in Spanish here John chapter 4 verse 9 La mujer samaritana le dijo ¿Cómo tú siendo judío me pides a mí de beber que soy mujer samaritana porque judíos y samaritanos no se tratan entre sí? The
5: Samaritan woman said to him, "You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews? Who have no associate
2: with Samaritans?" Uh,
5: I have chosen this particular uh, passage because of something that is going on in my city of Newport.
2: Uh, I'm doing
5: this intentionally because I want you to see the context in which we're talking about.
2: I've been in Newport in approximately 10 years. Y trabajo ahí juntamente con Glenn. And I'm working there with Pastor Glenn and
5: with whom I have developed a very strong relationship in these last 10
2: years, lo cual ha hecho a mí which has made me learn English. Y lo que le hecho él what has made him learn Spanish. Al principio fue difícil.
5: And In the beginning it was
2: hard, yo no because I spoke little English. Y él no hablaba español. And he didn't speak Spanish. Ahora es un poco más fácil. Now it's easier. Porque ahora él necesita hablar un poco más español y yo menos inglés. And because he has to learn to speak a little more Spanish and I more English. Quiero um, decirles algunas cosas en esta noche. I want to share several things with you. El 16% de la nación para el año 2009 eran hispanos. In
5: 2009, 16% of America was Hispanic.
2: Estamos hablando de 48 millones de personas.
5: We're talking about 48 million people.
2: Para el año 2050, Estamos hablando de
5: 153 millones de hispanos. we
2: El crecimiento de la población hispana es tremenda. The
5: of of the is
2: Lo que yo veo durante estos tiempos que yo he trabajado en Newport.
5: What I have uh, learned or seen during this time I've been working with Hispani- uh working in Newport y quiero
2: compartirlo con ustedes and I'd like to share it with you Cuatro cosas four things visión vision vision passion, passion estrategia strategy y, avivamiento. y... Avivamiento.
5: And, and um Awakens. awakening awakening <laughs> <laughs>
2: Bye. <laughs> you see this commercial? I am Mac. He's a PC. <laughs> I love you, brother.
5: Yeah, <laughs> uh, I this is spontaneous and unrehearsed.
2: Estamos hablando de un crecimiento hispano tremendo en la nación.
5: We're talking about a tremendous growth of Hispanics in the, in our nation. Yo soy de Perú. I'm from Peru. Y nunca me imaginé trabajar con gente de México. I never imagined myself working with Mexicans.
2: La iglesia a la cual pastoreo they, uh, church within I am pastoring 98% son mexicanos 98% are, Hispan- are Mexican Yo soy peruano y mi esposa es de Colombia.
5: I'm Peruvian my wife is from Colombia
2: Viva <laughs> El aprender de esta experiencia para mí ha sido gratificante.
5: This for me has been that I am for.
2: Porque hace diez años atrás, ten years back, First Baptist Church vio, un, tuvo una visión acerca de Samaria.
5: Because First Baptist Church of Newport had the vision to reach Samaria.
2: And Samaria for
5: the First Baptist Church of Newport was the Hispanic nation.
2: Dios puso en el corazón de muchos de los miembros de la iglesia hace 10 años atrás, vio la necesidad de que nuestra comunidad Hispana estaba creciendo.
5: The people of First Baptist 10
2: years ago ha- had put on their
5: hearts the fact that there was a growing Amount of Hispanics
2: in the city. Yo sé que su experiencia la misma. usted, usted encontrar hispanos vaya. And I'm sure that amongst this
5: whole congregation, wherever you go, you're going to find more
2: and more Hispanics. hispanos. You go to the store. Go
5: to the hospital wherever you're going you're going to find Hispanics
2: los de ellos hoy en día. today many of the jobs that are existent have to be bilingual and
5: the people of our church said what are we going to do to reach these
2: people and they started to pray for the city of Newport and by faith
5: and conviction they began to pray for the city of Newport.
2: Por eso digo la primera cosa es la visión.
5: The first thing I wanted you to know is that it has to be a
2: vision. Somos diferentes. We're different. Y the el día de hoy tenemos esas barreras. And even up to this day, we find these divisions, these um, barriers. Usted está hoy en esta noche en estas
5: Maybe you're thinking about some of those, those barriers
2: right now. Language, culture. Maybe you're thinking about some of those
5: Language, and Language, culture. there are probably are many others
2: uh, nosotros, hemos trabajado y tratando de quitar estas barreras y ser una sola iglesia
5: we've been working to do, take those barriers away and serve as one
2: church entonces la iglesia hace 10 años eh, tomó la visión y invitó a un, una persona que plantara la iglesia
5: and so 10 years ago the church invited a person to come and
2: plant a church Manuel Moyer vino a Newport y empezó a trabajar en Newport, alcanzando hispanos. Will Moyer came with
5: his wife ten years ago and began that process of planting a church.
2: Y después me invitaron a mí para seguir el proceso. And then they invited me to come and continue on that process. Y hemos trabajado ahí casi por nueve años en esa ciudad.
5: And we've been working there for nearly nine years. Es desafiante.
2: It's a challenge. Estoy aprendiendo aún todavía. I am still learning. Estoy escuchando lo que dijo, uh, el hermano anterior uh, es I have listened to what Michael just said and it is a situation of love. Samaria, Samaria. You've got to love Samaria. Hoy día, las cosas Today things are different. I am the worship leader in a en in the, in the First Baptist Church in the morning, I, I sing in English I lead the music in the morning.
5: Yo soy el director de... <laughs> 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 it's
2: a good thing <laughs> <laughs> Well, everything has changed right now in the church Ahora soy el Ahora soy el pastor de música de la, en la iglesia. No, I'm the, the, the worship pastor in, in First Baptist. Los músicos en la iglesia
5: americana son hispanos. The musicians in our in our Anglo church, the English speaking church, are Hispanic.
2: Pero hemos aprendido a amarnos.
5: And we have learned to love one another.
2: Hemos aprendido a aceptarnos.
5: We've uh, le- re- learned to accept each other.
2: Yo no quiero cambiarlos. I don't want to change them, Pero ellos tampoco quieren cambiarnos a nosotros. But they don't want to change us either. Es un mutuo.
5: It's a mutual respect.
2: Por el otro. We've got passion one for the other. Somos una sola iglesia. We are one church. Alcanzando nuestra comunidad. Dejame contarle la historia de Brian. Let me tell you the story of Brian. Como iglesia nosotros hemos estado empezando a hacer un desayuno una vez al mes para alcanzar nuestra comunidad.
5: En nuestra iglesia hemos comenzado a tener un desayuno una vez al mes para llegar a nuestra
2: comunidad. Free breakfast for everyone, hispanic o anglo, everyone is invited to the church. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I hope you're listening. Ok. Hemos hecho un conjunto entre americanos y hispanos para alcanzar nuestra comunidad.
5: We've made a, a group, uh, we've drawn together a group of people uh, between hispanics and anglos to reach our community. Marcos es uno de mis
2: líderes hispanos. Marcos. Marcos uh, is one of the, the leaders in our community. Llegamos a la iglesia muy temprano el primer desayuno del mes. We uh, came to the church the first
5: uh,
2: time in the, that month. Él agarró su automóvil, se fue a la ciudad y comenzó a recoger a los homeless de la ciudad.
5: Uh, he took his car out and began to run around the city and found the homeless to bring them to the church. And he went out and he picked up the homeless brought
2: them Americans.
5: He began to
2: understand that our community was made up not just of
5: Hispanics but it was Hispanics it was Anglo it was of
2: all different races, but we were one community este hombre, Brian, vio el de Marcos, when Brian saw marcos's heart he didn't
5: know why Marcos had invited him, and what was the purpose but he saw. Brian, our Marcos,
2: hard to bring him. Se sentaron en la misma mesa a compartir. Brian, homeless, de la ciudad de Newport. Marcos, un hispano de las de la iglesia nuestra.
5: He uh, here around the table. Brian, a homeless man, sitting at the table with Marcos, a Hispanic
2: from our city. Se no sabe lo que Dios puede hacer en medio de este tiempo.
5: We have no idea what God can do in this time.
2: Al siguiente día, the next day in primer servicio de la mañana. In the first worship service in the morning, Brian estaba en el servicio.
5: Brian came to attend.
2: Y hace 2 meses Brian no deja de faltar a la iglesia.
5: Two, for the last 2 months,
2: Brian has not missed a service. Ha cambiado su vida. It changed his life. Consiguió trabajo. He got work. Y agradece a Marcos por haberlo llevado.
5: All because Marcos was bringing him to
2: the church. Para nosotros, los Hispanos, nuestra Samaria es otra comunidad. Para us, la Hispanic
5: congregación, es nuestra host community. Visión, pasión, Vision, pasión, estrategia strategy, y avivamiento real uh, awakened awakened
2: <laughs> dice verso 39 del capítulo cuatro de Juan 4:39 of John Capítulo 4, verso 39. Muchos de los Samaritanos de aquella ciudad creyeron en él por la palabra de la mujer que daba testimonio diciendo, me dijo todo lo que he hecho.
5: Many of the Samaritans from that town believed en him because of the woman's testimony
2: that he told me everything I ever did. Verse 42. Dice, y decían a la mujer, ya no creemos solamente por tu dicho porque nosotros mismos hemos oído y sabemos que verdaderamente este es el salvador del mundo, el Cristo.
5: They said to the woman, "We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior
2: of the world." Leo este pasaje intencionalmente. I read this intentionally. Porque usted sabe muy bien la historia y el conocimiento de que entre judíos y samaritanos no se podían ver. Y los discípulos estaban sorprendidos de cómo Jesucristo estaba hablando con esta mujer y samaritana. And los
5: uh, disciples couldn't understand why in the world their Lord was speaking with this woman who was a rejected person in their society.
2: Usted puede en el mismo Maybe you find yourself in that same context. Compartiendo con un Hispano. Sharing with a Hispanic. But the interesting thing here is
5: that the Lord tells this is the time of the harvest.
2: Cada día. Cada día. Cada día más aún.
5: Each day we are growing more and
2: more. I
5: believe that we have to go much further and out where you
2: can already see.
5: Go to beyond that horizon
2: Hay grandes necesidades alrededor de nuestra community. There are great needs all,
5: around our community. Ten hispanos, we have Hispanics, Chinos, Chinese, Koreans, Korean, Arabes,
2: Arabs, Arabs, Rusos, Rusos, Russians, Cubanos, Cubans even though they are Latins, they're different than we are pero yo creo que Samaria está alrededor de su iglesia. But I that Samaria is
5: around in the where you live. Newport
2: ha aprendido a vivir en comunidad. Has how to live in Somos una sola iglesia. Un solo Dios. With one God. Un solo lenguaje. One language. Una, un solo amor. One love, un respeto, a mutual respect, una sola visión, one vision, un solo propósito, one purpose, alcanzar a los perdidos para Cristo, to reach the unbeliever, the lost for Christ. No importa que sea hispano o americano, mm-hmm. necesita ser alcanzado para. Cristo. Doesn't make any difference whether
5: you're Hispanic or American or whatever. You still need to come to Christ.
2: Si usted va a Newport, if you go to Newport, usted me va a ver ahí en la mañana con los americanos.
5: American.
2: Si usted va en la tarde, usted va a ver al pastor americano con los hispanos.
5: Porque
2: hemos aprendido a vivir en
5: comunidad. Yo
2: creo que usted lo puede hacer también. And I believe Con visión with vision, con pasión, with passion, estrategia, with strategy, y viene un gran avivamiento
5: para su iglesia. a great awakening for our church.
2: Dios los bendiga. God bless May you, God
3: We've seen how uh, and identified Samaritans in the uh, kind of recovery area. We've uh, talked about Samaritans as it relates to the Portlandia, picture. Um, we talked about different ethnicis, ethnicities and uh, now I want to have my friend Levi Manitis come up uh, who maybe fits all of those. No, um, He's uh, coming up to share he's the pastor at Cornerstone in John Day and he's going to talk about uh, kind of Samaria, Samaria that is difference in socioeconomic status and um, how that marginalizes people. Why are you laughing at me? <laughs> This is for Wayne and Bonnie.
6: (laughs) Greetings from the church in John Day, Oregon. Cowboy uh, meets St. Peter at the pearly gates. St. Peter says, Before I let you in, I need to know if you've done anything that was a noble cause. Cowboy says, Yes, yes I have. St. Peter says, Well, tell me about it. He says, Well, I was riding through town on horseback, and I came to a bar. And outside the bar was a gang of bikers, and they were giving the waitress a very bad time. I thought, I'm going to do something about this. So I went up to the meanest, baddest biker I could find, and I kicked him in the shin, and I punched him in the nose, and then I tipped over everybody's motorcycles. And I said, if this continues, this is what's going to happen to the rest of you. St. Peter goes, Wow, that was noble. When did this happen? Cowboy goes, About 30 seconds ago. (laughs) (laughs) Worked in Dallas, Russ. (laughs) Works in Seaside. Check. Okay. I was a little worried there because Roy was making everybody laugh. I was hoping that there would be some laughter left over. But um, (laughs) one of the things that I have noticed over the last uh, couple of days is um, the the men before me have uh, stood up here and have talked about their uh, spiritual formation and their foundation. I have an incredible history with CB Northwest. I love coming to these meetings. It's like a, a family reunion for me. A dysfunctional family reunion. But uh, <laughs> it's like my dad says, family's like fish. After three days, they start to stink. So that's why we don't go through Thursday anymore. We end it on Wednesday night. <laughs> I was born into the CB Northwest when I was in 1976. My dad was a youth pastor at Halbert Memorial Baptist Church in Salem, Oregon, named after some dead guy. (laughs) Uh, Proceeded when I was uh, eight years old to move the family of six to North Pole, Alaska, and uh, help start Community Baptist Church of North Pole. My grandpa before my dad was a CB pastor. Manzanita, Glide, and ended his career in White City uh, down by Medford. So I'm a third generation recovering CB Northwest pastor. (laughs) And so I have the incredible privilege of standing here today because of men that have come before me and men that you have heard from this week have let me stand on their shoulders, and have said, Levi, we let you stand on our shoulders, so that you can let the next generation of men, young men, young ladies stand on your shoulder. And so that's why I'm I'm here today, because men have let me stand on their shoulders. I have the incredible privilege this evening to paint a picture for you of how the gospel goes to work in a trailer park. That's what we've done. We bought a trailer in a mobile home park. And I hope what you hear me this evening is you hear um, me try to use better language. We bought a home in a home park. Okay? You laugh, but language is important. We don't go to church. We go to a church building. We are the church. We didn't buy a trailer. We bought a home in a park where people live in their other homes. And so, kind of the theme, the first thing I told people what I was going to say is, put your hands in the air and step away from the trailer. That's the theme for my talk tonight. The mission of Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in John Day is this, we desire to worship God by living in community, loving people, and listen to this next part, watching lives be changed by the gospel to live for Jesus. Because we are out of control. We are out of control. And so for the last two years, myself and our plurality of eldership at Cornerstone and John Day have been asking God, what do you want us to do around here? And for the last two years, we've been convicted to just love Jesus. Just love Jesus. I have a 1966 Chevy pickup. I bought it when I was 16 years old. Yeah, I've had it for 20 years. Ground up restoration, new wood in the back. I'm trying to sell it for about $4,000. So if you're interested, come see me afterwards. <laughs> I love that thing. And in John Day, it is fun to drive. The old timers wave at ya. You know, people just kind of, it's just, it's a looker. You know, and it's not, it's not a show truck. It's baby blue. Chester, my six year old yellow lab, rides in the back. I put on my cowboy hat right through town. This is my casual way to wear my cowboy hat right here. There's three ways a cowboy hat communicates. This is casual, you're talking to your friends. This is when you're just, you know, at the grocery store driving down the road. This is when it's windy. (laughs) They call it screwing it on. This 1966 Chevy pickup truck has a 455 Buick engine, and it passes anything but a gas station. (laughs) My 14-year-old wants it in the worst way. But I just don't think it's very practical for him. Price of gas. Every time I fill up my car, it's just praise the Lord. (laughs) That 66 Chevy, when we come to the stoplight in eighty square miles it is raring to go I have to hold on the brake and it's going it wants to go, I let off the brake and we burn rubber I haven't even touched the gas yet that is a young buck Levi Menitsis in the ministry I am raring to go, let off the brake, let's do this thing I've got every idea under the sun. I'm a control freak. I really am. knock knock. What control that? freak. Now you say control freak. Who? <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I want to have my finger in every in every ministry possible, and I, and I don't trust people very well. I got put in my place last weekend in Dallas, Oregon, when I sat down with Dana and. I just said, you are a godly woman, and you've, God has put you in my place because I don't, I don't trust people in ministry, and, and I just, I just want to control things. And God says, Levi, just love Jesus. Actually, it was God speaking through Luke Hendricks when we were moving to John Day. I said, I don't know what to do, because just love Jesus. So we've been going, God, what do you want us to do around here in John Day? And it just keeps coming back. Just love Jesus. But I want to take the foot off the brake and I want to hit the gas. Let's go. Just love Jesus. What began to come to mind was Jesus' parable of the least of these in Matthew chapter 25. Where in Matthew, Jesus says that as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And in this par- parable, we see that the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God. Not because of the compassionate works that they've done. But because of the compassion that has been showed to them. And then the evidence of that compassion comes out in love towards other people. So we we have to show compassion to other people because it's been shown to us. And the evidence is that what we do for the least of these as if we did it for Jesus himself. And so we began to look around for the least of these in our community. It's not that hard. You can spend a lot of meetings and a lot of time trying to define who are the least of these. Let's put together a community. And in a couple weeks, would you bring a definition back to the elders about who are the least of these? And it's like, it's in the Bible, Matthew chapter 25. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so the, um, Jesus led us to Riverside Home Park, just less than a mile away from our church building. Which in John Day, everything's just a little bit less than a mile away from you. 153 homes on 23 and a half acres with 1,100 feet of riverfront property on the mighty John Day River. Inside the city limits, mind you, it's only a square mile, there is no property with that much riverfront of the mighty John Day. And it is an absolute mess. So I didn't bring a saddle or some props. I wore my hat. I thought maybe I'd go buy a case of Keystone light as a prop. <laughs> the Grant County beer of choice. But I brought some pictures and um, Eric, we just, we'll just we just throw up a couple. This is, this is our, our neighborhood. Riverside Home Park. People live here. These are their homes. The next one that's just somebody's yard. It's piles, cabinets. That's a that's a vacant home that that we're, you know, maybe we can fix up and you can see there's a vacant lot next door. So very desirable location right on the river. Somebody's back. People live in these places. That's 46 and 47. I've been going there once or twice a week now for the last couple months. Don't go to the next one yet, Eric. So we started throwing parties and inviting Riverside Home Park, going door to door, inviting them. And, and the people wanted to go, well, how do you get people to show up? And I said, food, <laughs> free food. And they'll, they'll show up. And they showed up. Next Wednesday night, the, we have a home group in our home that meets on Wednesday night. So our home group has sent out an invitation to the 153 homes at Riverside. We're gonna have a pizza party at our church building. We're gonna feed, hopefully, the RSVP. I have no idea how many pizzas to buy, but I know the Figaro's guy, and we'll keep him on high alert. (laughs) I woke up in the middle of the night a couple of months ago, which I tend to, it's three o'clock, it's either 3 or 3.01, several nights a week. And I used to lose a lot of sleep and be anxious and get depressed and, and wouldn't be able to fall back asleep at 6. I embrace that time now. I've seen some amazing things happen at 3 o'clock in the morning. It's when they, uh, they found Saddam Hussein 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> seen some other world. I get up, I'll have a tendency to turn on the TV and go, like, all right, Lord, what happened tonight? You know. It's, <laughs> orange oranges, frozen, Florida. All right. Price of cattle's up. That's good. So I got this crazy idea. I just embrace it now. I pray and I fall asleep about 30 seconds later. And uh, the Lord said, hey, um, why don't you, I mean, this is, this is a vision. Why don't you just buy a home in Riverside? Buy a trailer. <laughs> um, so we got the crazy idea of buying a home. 40 foot single wide, three bedroom, one and a half bath. Space number 18, throw it up there. She's cute. Got a white picket fence. I, uh, I had the local FFA group build me a picnic table. Got it at an auction for 100 bucks, $80 worth of supplies. So, you know, really only paid me paid 20 bucks for the picnic table. We're going to start throwing picnics and, and barbecues at space number 18. We have a family in our, in our church, our church family, Mike and Lori Shockley with Katie and Joshua. They're gonna move into space number 18 on April 1st. And they're gonna be cornerstones, missionaries to the Riverside Home Park. So Mike, uh, we're gonna stay at Riverside. Uh, We're we're, we're not parachuting in. Fix them all up. Change their lives so that they move out to come live like the rest of the world. No, we're gonna move in. We're gonna stay there. We're going to live amongst them. Some of the gospel things that we've seen happening are, they were asking $4,000 for space number 18. We got it for $2,500. <laughs> Wheeling and dealing. <clears throat> I made a phone call. I kind of had to backtrack a little bit. I started getting a little worried that I was kind of getting ahead of God in this. thought maybe I should call the owners and see if it's okay that we do this sort of thing so I call up Jerry Fox a lawyer and a real estate broker from Corvallis Oregon, don't hold that against him begin to tell him hey we want to move in there and we just want to start helping out and doing some things and meeting our neighbors and throwing parties he goes well you can't do that I'm like oh here we go Cancel that check. (laughs) I actually did. Canceled the $2,500 check just in case I bought a trailer and couldn't own it. I want to obey the rules. He goes, well, how are you going to do that, because we don't let another party own a trailer in our park and then rent it for somebody else. And I said, okay, that's fine. We'll just give the trailer away. Uh, All right. (laughs) And we'd like to do some things. We'd like to maybe build a playground or a gazebo or picnic spot. He goes, yeah, see, the problem with that is I have people all the time offering help, but it always ends up costing me more money in the end. I said, well, we're going to provide all the money. We'll do everything. He goes, yeah, I have never had this type of conversation with anybody ever. (laughs) Next time I'm in John Day, we need to sit down and talk. I'm like, great, give me a call. I'll meet you at the Squeeze in my office away from my office. We don't drink fair trade organic coffee, we drink Folgers in Grant County. So I roll up in my pickup truck, my hat, and Chester, and I see a Mercedes Benz parked out in front. I went like, oh no, they're here. But I know everybody, I know Sean. Hi Levi, hey Sean. The usual, Folgers, no sugar, no cream. Grande. What's that mean, Roy, big? (laughs) Sit down, Jerry and Chris Fox, father, son, brokers. I call them the mafia. Gold chains, gold necklaces we have this conversation. They are very cynical. They are very, um, they don't trust anyone. Um, they're, they're really leery of, of what, we're, what we're thinking about doing. Um, four weeks ago, Jerry and Chris came to church on a Sunday morning. They were looking for a Catholic mass, typical mafia. I said, That's, here, here's where the Catholic Church is. I would, I'd love for you to, to come to Cornerstone and meet my small army. <laughs> so, so they showed up. Last week, I was speaking at Russ's church in Dallas, Oregon. Guess who came to church on Sunday? Jerry and his wife, Roberta, showed up at, in Dallas, Oregon, at church. When we had that phone call, and I canceled the check, I called our elders. I called Don Willie. I said, Don, it's not going to happen. It's not going to work. Don goes, you know what, Levi, I think God just has a bigger picture than we do. No, no, it's not. No, it's just not going to work. No, Levi, see God wants the owners of Riverside to be saved. He wants them to be a part of this gospel process, not just Riverside. So um, I gave uh, Chris a, a key to our church building. Uh, last week when he was in town. He was looking for a meeting space. And the next day he came into my office. He said he brought me a big old can of Folgers and a $20 bill. I'm like, hey, what's this for? Well, I drank a can of your Folgers and $20 is for letting me use your building. I, I worked through last night till about 3 o'clock in the morning step four on my AA process, my timeline, my lifeline. And he did that at Cornerstone's church building. I mean, it was it was great. Joni, the manager of the park, grew up in the park. She is floored. She's had these ideas for a long time, but she doesn't have any support or anything of how to do it, so we're just spending time with her, and she would n- never answer my call. And, and now, I mean, she picks up every time when I call her. Mo and Lisa are the caretakers have lived there for 18 years. I had a couple of Folgers with them at McDonald's the other day. I said, hey, some things are happening around the park and I need to apologize. We need to step back a little bit and we should probably ask the people that live there, what do you think about all this stuff that's going on? And that's when the idea of like, hey, let's throw a pizza party, you know, and let's, let's ask Riverside what they think about all this. You know, and there's, we're getting some good feedback. They're they're worried about the playground, and they're worried about who's going to be liable for that. And I'm like, well, it's it's going to happen. It's going to be okay. The owners just say, yeah, we'll just call the insurance and we'll take care of it. Not a problem. I've got six truckloads of bark dust to put down for that. You know, that required 12 inches of padding or something like that. And the biggest negative I've had back is like, but slivers. <laughs> Kids will get slivers. We'll buy them shoes. <laughs> some big dreams that we have for Riverside Home Park is maybe like a, a community center. I've been meeting with some people in the community. The school superintendent says, What there's a whole school bus that stops there and picks up a busload of kids and takes them to school. Now, the statistics are that people from low-income families struggle in education. Kids do. So what if we worked with the school district, had a community center where we did tutoring, things like that during the week. These are just some big dreams. School's on board. They love it. Block parties, 4th of July. Block off the, we'll just move one of those broken down cars over. Nobody can get by. (laughs) We'll provide the hamburgers, grass-fed, strawberry mountain beef company hamburgers. We'll let people BYOB. We're not there to change people's lives. Remember, part of our mission statement is to watch the gospel, watch people's lives be changed by the gospel. We will present the gospel. We'll take every opportunity to tell people about Jesus and what he's done for me and what he can do for you. We will do that. But we're not going to cure alcoholism along the way. We'll let the gospel do that. Some of the things that have taken place just in the last couple months as far as this covenant community takes place is I got a call from Pastor Russ from Dallas, Oregon, saying, hey, we, we heard about this and we would like to be a part of it. So we want to send a group of men over and that church in Dallas, Oregon, Grace Baptist Church of Dallas, they can swing the hammers. So we want to bring some hammers over and we want to do some work. So they're going to build a playground this summer. From Dallas Oregon we are. yeah <laughs> I get a call I get a call from Pastor Joel here from North Coast Family Fellowship and says hey we'd like to bring a youth group over spring break and we would like to help do some projects in Riverside Home Park so we got this big old week planned of cleaning up the riverfront um, cleaning up some of these vacant homes and maybe doing putting together a community garden in in the home park those are some things that we'll will we'll discuss next Wednesday night when we have this pizza party at our building so pastor Joel's going to come over we have no clue what this looks like put your hands in the air and step away from the trailer it's become the theme for all of our ministries at John Day For a couple of reasons. One is, the people hear this all the time. (laughs) Put your hands in the air stuff away from the trailer. (laughs) The second reason is, is this is, this, I mean we're just buying a trailer folks. But for John, Cornerstone of John Day, this is a big deal. And it is so much bigger than us. It's so much bigger than this. We, we, can't, we can't do this. I mean, I could. if I, I could. I could. I could. Okay, I could. I'm a control freak. I can make it happen. We can't. We can't do this. We, we can't do all these things without the gospel just kind of like. And every time I get down, just some Russ calls. Says, hey, we want to come helm out. That's great. I'm up for another week. Good to go. Discouraged, down. Joel calls. Hey, we'd like to bring a team over. Alright, let's do this. I'm up for a couple of weeks, doing good. Down, discouraged. This is way too big. Way too big. And Jerry and Chris show up to church. God says, step back and let me handle it. I don't know what it looks like. I have no clue. what what this all looks like. It might be a trash heap still in a couple years. But I know God and He can be trusted. And He says, put your hands in the air and step away from the trailer. What I want you to hear from me this evening is how daunting of a task this really is. Even getting CCF on board, I mean, people are excited. Pastor Levi, you're bringing vision to the church. It's like... Yeah, it's a trailer. I mean, have you not been listening to what we've been talking about for the last two years? We bring vision every Sunday. (laughs) Love people. Worship God. Those are pretty good vision things that people want, you know, tangible, hands-on. And I know some of the things you've heard this week, we can make these projects sound so, so easy. I mean... Wayne, I was tearing up with Wayne, it's like, I want to be a cowboy preacher. (laughs) I'm on board, hey Wayne, I'm going to start sending cowboys your way. My 14 year old, riding for Crown Cattle Company this summer. He'll give him a couple years, let him drive first, and then we'll come your way. Another thing that is so daunting and difficult about this task is that the Empire thinks that this is foolish. A waste of time, a waste of money, and a waste of resources. I received a call two weeks ago from the alternative school in town. A bunch of kids who either live there or grew up in Riverside Home Park. And this just caused a conversation just to blow up. And The teacher called and said, we haven't had this type of conversation in years. The class time went over by an hour. So we'd like to invite you in to come in and talk about it. So I came in, and I said, hey, the first thing you need to know is I love Jesus and I'm a pastor, but I'm not here to preach to you, so bow your heads and let's pray. <laughs> <laughs> and we just had this back and forth conversation. You're wasting your time. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> Nobody wants to do this. It feels like a big waste of time. It's impossible. But we have to start somewhere. So you want to build a playground where all the the sex predators can watch and just look for their next victim. Yeah, but my God's pretty big. So I think, I think he's got this under control. They don't understand world and us language. It's us and the world. So I used Star Wars where I'm the rebellion and the world's the empire. I said, the empire thinks this is foolish. This is not the trailer you're looking for. I said, the kingdom that I'm a part of, God's kingdom, is when I walk into a room, I'm stepping over the light bulbs. It's completely upside down to the empire, and it's so. And these kids are still giving me a bad time. I said, but I would like to invite you to be a pro- part of the process, You're doing something on spring break. Do you want to do that? Every hand in the room went up. They think it's foolish and a waste of time, but. I got nothing better to do on spring break. (laughs) What time did you say that party was? (laughs) It's incredibly discouraging if I wake up at 3.01 and I get too far ahead of myself or I get too far ahead of God and start thinking about how big of a project this is. It seems so impossible. But all those guys that let me stand on their shoulders, not one of them said that this was going to be easy. And so we just throw our hands in the air, we step away from the trailer, and we love Jesus. So what? Well, we desire to worship God by living in community, by loving people, And watching lives be changed by the gospel to live for Jesus. Amen.